Hi, my name is Rabbi Sandra Lawson. And the thing that I'm praying for, most hopeful for, one, please vote. And two, I'm, I'm really praying that our country heals itself from the sickness of racism, sexism, xenophobia, um, homophobia, on all of those things that privilege one group of people over another. And the thing is, you can't heal yourself unless you know you're sick. And so you need a Misha Barak prayer for that. I'm praying that we all recognize that we are, we have this illness and that we will heal ourselves. Hey, it's Jess. Welcome to Pray For Us, co-hosted by me and JC. Pray For Us is a podcast about practicing an ancient religion in the modern day. We're talking about how we observe Judaism when it comes to holidays, relationships, food, and everything in between. Today, we're talking to Rabbi Sandra Lawson. In addition to being a rabbi, Sandra is an author, speaker, musician, vegan, educator, army veteran, and TikToker. I was going to say hello, Jews, and then I was like, I don't know how that sounds. We need like a word for our fans. Like, uh, yeah, I have to think about that. <laughs> Jews and Gentiles. That doesn't have a nice ring to it, but we'll work no, on that. That sounds offensive all around. Okay. But I was going to say, we're trying something new where JC and I chat one on one and kind of prep you for this episode. And obviously, if you want to, you can fast forward. Just don't tell us if you do that because it will hurt our feelings. They can figure this out on their own. That they can fast forward. I just want them to know that this is a safe space. Fair. Okay. We talked to Rabbi Sandra Lawson. She is very cool, very smart. I feel like I was like silent most of this episode because I was just taking in all the information. What do you think, JC? No, likewise. I think I was in awe. I mean, I'm always in awe when we talk to rabbis or people who are (laughs) much more educated than we are on Judaism and in in general. But I was just in awe of all the stuff that I did not know. So I think both of us equally let her do a lot of the explaining and we were doing the, the learning. Plus my Zoom connection was really bad and I cut out a couple of times. So I was just like, I hope that this doesn't ruin the whole interview. And it didn't. It didn't. It was fine. So thank God. That's neurotic Jess. (laughs) That's what they call me. I also wanted to clarify a couple of things. At one point, I said that Jews are more prominently white, and I meant to say predominantly. And I just think that that's an important conclusion that a lot of people are going to care about. Nobody would have noticed or cared. And now I think because you're calling it out, people are going to be like, oh, that's really stupid. But you just sold yourself out for no reason is what that sounds like. I guess so. Also, something I wanted to mention, I realized about myself, is I am so intimidated by rabbis, priests, imams, like religious leaders. I just feel like they're such righteous people. I know that's not the point, but I'm always just like, I never know what to say. I feel like I'm definitely intimidated in, <laughs> intimidated by them, but I'm also like a little shy around Mm -hmm. them because I don't want to be offensive in any way. And not that I'm an inherently offensive person and I just like walk around saying like blasphemous shit, but I'm afraid that even some of the times like the questions I might ask might seem ignorant or like not worthy of their time, which is the complete antithesis of like what speaking to a rabbi is or why we do it. But I feel like I just, yeah, I just feel less than in the presence of 
uh, spiritual leaders. I totally get that. I feel like what's great about people like Rabbi Sandra is she sort of sort of breaks down that stereotype and she's so approachable and kind and normal and she's not a straight white man. <laughs> so that also helps. But definitely she still is so smart and knows so much about Judaism. And I almost felt like, oh, I should know more. But it inspired me to like continue to learn but also just to be myself and know that like my, I can still be accepted in my religion, not by everyone, but by enough people to make it okay. No, I know. I love when we talk to rabbis or folks that are more educated in Judaism and they make me feel okay with like the decisions that I've made on my path, especially, you know, in terms of believing in God. I feel like Rabbi Sandra really allowed me to realize that there are so many different interpretations of what believing in like a quote unquote God is. And yeah, I mean, same with Rabbi Alex Kress, obvi. Yeah, for sure. And hopefully we'll talk to many more religious leaders in future episodes. Or like, so maybe we won't. It depends. You guys tell us if you don't like <laughs> it, like, we'll just stop. Like, we'll just go in a totally different direction. This is your podcast, folks, not ours. <laughs> We're doing this for you, for very loyal fans who we haven't named yet, but we will. The prayer books, our little prairies. <laughs> okay, I don't hate that. We need a brainstorm. We'll get back to you guys. Well, without further ado, here's the episode. We hope you enjoy. Here's us talking to Rabbi Sandra. I just really wanted to say that. Rabbi Sandra, thank you for joining us. Do you prefer Rabbi Sandra, Rabbi Sandra? I mean, I just, my students either call me, hey, Rabbi, or Rabbi Sandra. I'm really not a rabbi last name person. Uh, I know some people feel like that might be a sign of disrespect, but it really does suit my personality to be Rabbi Sandra. Uh, but most of my students, it just gets shortened to Rabbi. Got it. <laughs> and can you tell us a little bit about what you do now mm -hmm. professionally? Because you've done quite a bit. You've definitely lived a lot of lives. Just old. I'm just old. That's all. <laughs> um, you don't yeah, look old. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I am currently serving as the uh, associate chaplain for Jewish life at Elon University and the Hillel Jewish Educator. Uh, and nobody really knows why I should. That's a lot of stuff to say that I'm the campus rabbi. Okay. Do a lot of universities have campus rabbis? I don't, I don't actually, I don't know if there's a majority or whatever, but I do know that, um, you know, religious diversity in this country and many universities understand that they need more pluralistic approaches to religion. Um, a lot of rabbis do serve on college campuses in a variety of roles, either as chaplain or teacher or educator. And that is definitely something that's happened in the last, you know, couple of decades or more of that has happened in the last couple of de decades. Do you find that the majority of your students are kids or young adults rather who practiced religion at home and came to you looking to further their education and their, you know, their practice or kind of kids who are maybe like more lost when coming to college and like looking to turn to Judaism as something they hadn't turned to before? It's everything. I mean, even things you didn't mention. So um, I we have students who come to college and they want to continue whatever 
They did at home. For many students, this is the first their first experience of Judaism outside of their home synagogue or home mm-hmm. community. So often when they come to college campus, it doesn't reflect what they thought all of Judaism is or was. And so they have to find their their place or their way. And we have students that um, you know had some form of a traditional Jewish upbringing um, and come to campus and don't want any part of that. We have students that you know had a Jewish parent but had no no Jewish upbringing. Um, but want to discover that I interact with students that that were also raised with another religious tradition and love to hang out with mm-hmm. Hillel students as they come to their house or maybe even want to explore Judaism or not. And um, we have students who their only Jewish experience is a camp experience, which is, which is amazing. And I kind of feel like they have to, some of them feel like, why? Well, I'm not Jewish. I just went to camp. I'm like, that's, that, that's awesome. Like, <laughs> that's, that's good. That's like, don't say that that's not a Jewish thing. That's, that's totally a thing. And so it's, you know, it's all of it. And I can't speak for other campuses, but that's, we have a variety of Jewish practices and beliefs. And when I was hired, they wanted someone with a very pluralistic approach. And how I, how I view that is one way that I explain it to the Jewish folks on campus is that I kind of see my role is to meet you wherever you are on your Jewish journey. And I'm, I'm privileged and honored to be on this Jewish journey with you. Let's meet where you are and guide you where you want to go or where you hope to go, or um, instead of trying to mold you and shape you into some form of Judaism that I think you should be. I don't, I'm not, I'm not like that. And you were not raised with religion growing up and came to it later on in life. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, and what, you know, what I, what I understand now is that like when I, when, when I used to write about this when I was a lot younger, that I was not raised with a religious tradition. I was not raised with anything. But what I, I do understand now that, you know, even though I was not raised in a religious tradition, the default of living in this society is that if you don't know any religion, you definitely know something about Christianity. So I understood what I understood the Christ, the Jesus birth narrative, but that's pretty much it. <laughs> I also understood <laughs> that Jews didn't believe in Jesus. That's how I understood that. And I knew that the Muslim population was growing, but I didn't, you know, understand that either. And Buddhists to me seemed peaceful and loving. And that was the extent of my my religious understanding. And then, you know, when I became older and found myself with a bunch of Jewish friends, I'm like, oh, this sounds kind of cool. <laughs> Today I'm a rabbi, which is why Jews need to tell people about Judaism, not to proselytize, but you never know. Like you, you friend somebody over weight training and next thing you know, they're a rabbi. Like that's... <laughs> happens <laughs> every day. <laughs> Can you like pinpoint a specific memory or a time that kind of led you down the track of becoming Jewish or even becoming a rabbi? Like what did that one friend say or like what sparked the most interest for you? You know, there was a series of things. I mean, like yeah, there was definitely one person who helped me, but things led up to that. So I'll even go back to my undergrad education where I had a professor introduce me to the five books of Moses of the Torah. Um, he called it the five books of Moses. They would call it the Torah. Um, and it was my first understanding of the Bible as a piece of literature and 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 it, he made the Bible accessible to me and I was like oh this is really cool and uh, I learned that you know the Bible was not something to condemn people with it had these beautiful stories in it and then I didn't think much of it uh, you know 10 15 years go by and then I have a, a, a crazy Jewish girlfriend and <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, who didn't teach, didn't, was it one of those people who didn't talk much about the Judaism? Um, and 
was really important for her to have a Jewish partner. And I said, well, let's talk about this. And what does that mean? You don't talk about Judy. You wanted somebody, you know, like maybe I'm open to it or whatever, but that relationship wasn't going anywhere. But but she was just someone who had, you know, strongly identified as, as, as Jewish. And when she practiced, it was more of an Orthodox practice, but not anything about her life resembled an Orthodox practice unless she went to shul, which was not a lot. I don't know what she's doing today. I don't talk to her anymore. <laughs> but, but at the same time, like I, had, I also had, I was working as a personal trainer. I had a lot of Jewish clients. I also had a lot of pregnant clients too. So I don't want you to think like, so I could have easily had a baby. <laughs> <laughs> you could have been swayed in many different directions, but you yeah. went toward Judaism. So. Yeah. Um, but no, like I, one of my friend, Rabbi Joshua Lesser, ha- ha- hired me as his, his rabbi. We became friends. And I don't think I even knew what a rabbi was other than like a clergy. And he was like a really interesting guy and didn't fit any idea of what I thought clergy was supposed to be like. Was I was very, very naive. Uh, he was also gay, which is also pretty cool because I was, uh, you know, openly, openly gay person. Our friendship grew. I think initially I started asking him to help me explain my girlfriend or help me explain the other stuff. Or I just started asking questions. And he says that like my questions started to change to become more personal. And for me, not necessarily about him, but I did ask him questions about himself. And so he, you know, started, started inviting me to his synagogue. And I was sort of really curious about that, but I was also scared because I didn't know what, I knew Judaism was not a race, but I had only met white Jews. And so I was really mm-hmm. concerned about that, but I did go and I had a great time and here I am today. It is interesting because religion in America is theoretically a choice, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. a lot of people don't actually act on that choice mm-hmm. or they fear that maybe their families won't accept them if they switch religions Mm -hmm. or if they reject religion. So I think it's really cool that you made that decision for yourself. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there was like fear involved in that, but I definitely really respect that. Something I think is interesting though is like feeling like, okay, there's no other people who like look like me in the Jewish community that you can see because most prominently Jewish people are white. Mm-hmm. Was that something you had to get over? Like as you started practicing more, you met more and more Jews who were different races and backgrounds or how did that sort of play out for you? Well, you know, my, um, my synagogue at Atlanta, uh, I was not the only Jew of color there. Um, I don't recall if there were actually people of color there when I walked through the door. Some of these people who were people of color were were partnered with the Jews in the synagogue, and some of them are were are Jews. But over time, you know, different people of color started to come in and out. And uh, the synagogue is also in the city of Atlanta, so most of the synagogues in Atlanta are actually in the suburbs and technically not in the city of Atlanta. And so, you know, when you are a gay-founded synagogue in the multiracial area of a city, people look who look like me coming in um, is. Not not an unusual thing. Right. Uh, so, and I did, I think I did ask Josh once, like why people didn't ask me questions about who I was, what I was doing there. And he said, you know, we're in the city, people come in all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and then he also, you know, he was not, he, you know, Josh is, you know, one of those rabbis who has a very good understanding of marginalized groups 
in Judaism uh, in the in the United States and did not ever create a picture for me that Judaism is for white people, you know, and that is not something that rabbis say, but the things that often rabbis don't say or communities don't say, they they continue to project imagery that Jews are white. And I'm talking about like if you walk into a synagogue, you see images of white people, you don't see images of people like me, you don't, you see images of straight couples, you don't see images of queer people. That is changing. And it was also really important for me at the time just to feel safe, just to be in a space. So when I walked into the synagogue, there were people there that I had seen before, like not, I was, I may not have been close friends with them, but there were like activists that I would see at pride parade or, or pride marches or whatever social issue was happening at the time. I, so I had seen some of them before I was like, Oh, so th- th- they come here and they hang out. And then this idea that I could like work all week and then come and hang out with people somewhere and feel like, part of something uh, was pretty cool. And I don't think I really understood that at the time, but it was just like, I just kept going back, even though I didn't understand a word anybody was saying which is something people forget. Like, I mean, people t- talked in English, but the prayers were in Hebrew. It was, a you know, a lot of prayer. Like, it's not one of these, it was not one of these synagogues at the time where their liturgy was mostly English. Their liturgy was mostly, mostly Hebrew. But I, I like the beat. And so, and again, the music at this synagogue is very different than the music in a lot of other synagogues. I'm saying all that because I want people to understand that I have been in many, many, many synagogues <laughs> since that one. And unfortunately, most of them, that had been my first introduction to Judaism. I wouldn't be a rabbi today. That's so interesting. That's a good point. I want to I want to ask you upon meeting and teaming up with Rabbi Josh, was there ever a concern about what Jewish text says about being gay? Because I know a, a lot of other religions there are these preconceived notions about what is and isn't allowed by the Bible, and I'm just curious if he ever like walked you through what the Torah does say mm-hmm. about that if anything. So what's interesting is that um you know, I think I'm one of these people that believes that when you start to put energy out into the world, things just sort of come to you. It doesn't mean that you just sort of sit idly by and wait for it like, come to me, but the things happen. So there was a guy, for a former Catholic priest, who wrote a book entitled something like What the Bible Says About Homosexuality. Um, and he used to work out at the gym. And I got this book one day when I was at the bookstore. And then I looked at the back cover. I had it for a long time, the back cover. And I was like, oh my gosh. Or maybe or either that or he came to my synagogue. One of the two, because I know he came to the synagogue. And uh, so I, I, he was on the, the elliptical and I went up and introduced myself to him. And I was like, you wrote this book and and you and he's like you don't I don't think you need my book I said I don't but I think it's just really cool that you wrote this book um and I'm using it to sort of arm myself when I have these conversations about where what Judaism says about gay people also because I wasn't raised religious I didn't have the trauma of combating unlearning you know whatever. I just know that when I had gone into churches, I didn't like what they had to say. And I also believed that there was nothing wrong with me. <laughs> so, and then of course my rabbi is gay. And then, and the synagogue had this prayer that they said at the end of every service, even though the synagogue was founded by gay and lesbians, it's it's a majority straight synagogue. So there's prayer that they say at the end of the service. It began, at the time it began with we as gay and lesbian Jews, and it goes on to talk about wanting to be our full selves. And everybody in the community was saying, this prayer, even the straight people. And then, and then as I go through, you know, adult ed classes or my, um, my conversion classes, the teacher there, a straight man, um, we were sitting up standing, sitting in the parking lot, a bunch of us, and somehow the subject of gay people came up. And he had really clever arguments that I hadn't heard before in support of gay people and support of Torah and gay people. So I was really, so I'm saying all this stuff to say that, that I was very lucky 
to at the very beginning to run into people who love Judaism and also could show that Judaism supports supports gay people. It's really great that you were able to find such a supportive and open community mm-hmm. because I think something that a lot of people forget is that there's different communities within Judaism. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have Reform, Conservative, Orthodox, Ultra-Orthodox, and not everyone is so accepting and open. Do you think, is that because of the way that they translate the Torah and what it says, or is it just kind of being stuck in their old ways of doing things? So what I want to say, like what, how you describe that is mm-hmm. a lineage. So that is mm-hmm. like all of those streams of Judaism come from Eastern Europe. Sephardic Jews don't describe themselves that way. They may now because of how America operates. And Mizrahi Jews, same thing. And, you know, Ethiopian Jews, they had a whole other set of history and and whatever. And so I just want to say that, like, even that breakdown is very particular. So even though I am, I, I don't consider myself Ashkenazi, I'm well aware that my education is steeped in Ashkenazi Jewry, even though I don't consider myself mm-hmm. that. That's I actually just, had no idea that that was an Ashkenazi <laughs> belief Me system. either. Uh-huh. Yeah, Dude. it is. It's like it started in Eastern Europe when, um, you know, Jews started getting out of the shuttle. In fact, there's uh, several books with the title, um, When Judaism Became Religion. And one of them in particular I read has a green cover and it's pretty good and it's, it, it's accessible. It's not so it's, it's not so far out in the clouds. You're like, what the hell is this? But it, it talks about that, you know, when Jews started to get more more uh, rights and privileges and citizenship in, 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 in places like Germany, they wanted to be more like Germans and not live in the shuttle. And they sort of got rid of their clothing or they wanted to be more intellectual or they wanted they moved in the cities and then started to intermarry, whatever, to look like the rest of society. And out of that, the reform movement was born. And then there's this other group of people who were like, that's, you've gone too far. Like, that's just, so we're going to freeze Judaism in time. That's how orthodoxy mm-hmm. became. This, 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 this idea that Judaism was all, was never evolving, which is not true. And then, you know, uh, the conservative movement was like, you both, y'all both, <laughs> you went too far over here. You went too far. Let's, let's, let's just stick, try to stick to how we've always done things and slowly adapt to change based off of Halakha. And that's how the conservative movement was formed. And, the, and then the last stream, which is the stream that I belong to, the Reconstructionist Movement, um, was founded by Jews who came to the United States um, and had believed that the, the, the reform movement had gone too far. So by the time the reform movement immigrated to the United States, they, they stopped wearing, you know, kippahs and they stopped wearing prayer shawls. And some of them had services on Sundays and some of their rabbis were called reverend or, or doctor or mister or whatever. Um, and so Mordecai Kaplan, who was a professor at JTS, uh, was like, you know, felt like the reform movement had gone way too far. And he was a conservative rabbi and he started to create a, wanted to create probably a different, like another stream of the conservative, stream of the conservative movement. But his plan was never to break away from the conservative movement, but he wanted Jews to understand that you could be religious and be intellectual and that you can live in two civilizations. So you could be a religious Jew and you could be a U.S. citizen. They broke, the Reconstruction Movement was formed because the, some of the changes were, um, they realized they had to break away from the conservative movement because like the, the concept of chosenness, pluralistic perspectives, egalitarianism, um, all of these things that uh, the, the reason, the, so the, the reasons like, that the Reconstructors movement was formed at the time were pretty radical, but today they're not like a supernatural God. Like 
not believing in a being that controls things, um, believing in God, but not necessarily somebody who controls the things that I do or the things that people do. Mm-hmm. Today, it's not. So all these streams of Judaism that sort of form from Ashkenazi Jewry, um, there's more similarities than there are differences now. And it's people like me that can recognize a difference, but your average layperson would be just like, I like the synagogue. It's pretty cool. They don't necessarily understand all that other stuff. So this might be a very dumb question, but that's why we're here. We're learning. Your synagogue that you're part of now is specifically a reconstructionist synagogue or no? So my synagogue, so I'm a, I'm a campus rabbi. So I serve right. a community of college students. And so that is my community that I serve. When I... Um, or I guess, yeah, when you studied, you specifically studied Reconstructionism? Yes, yes. Okay. Yes, yes. And that yes. entire community also practices Reconstructionism? Like, yeah, so like is it, the Reconstructionist, there's a Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. It's like there's a Hebrew oh, okay. college. There's a seminary that trains, uh, there's a rabbinical school that trains Reconstructionist rabbis. And, and the way I look at this is that the education of a rabbi, I believe that anyone who wants to go to rabbi school should to choose a school that fits with their theology or the way they want to be a rabbi in the world. You know, today, many people choose to be a reform rabbi because that's what they were raised with and that's what they, they're comfortable with. And I always encourage people to check them all out. But then once you graduate and, and get ordained, you can move, you can change your affiliation or get a double affiliation. So there are reconstructionist rabbis who wind up serving in conservative communities or reform communities. And also there are conservative trained rabbis who serve in the uh, reconstructionist movement. I don't, I can't think of a reform rabbi that, that does, but, and, and we all have different approaches to the same history. This, this, this thousands of years of, of history. Now that you've explained all of this, I'm realizing I define myself as reform, but I'm like, maybe I'm reconstructionist. I should look into that. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if I really like it, I think I do based I, off of everything I just well, I you, learned. What, what people have to understand is like, because people you know, often say that like, there's not a lot of difference. And the, just to, the foundation of the Reconstructionist movement from the very beginning, women have equal rights uh, or equal obligation. Gay rabbis were accepted right away. No, not believing in a supernatural being. And the concept of chosenness seemed uh, elitist. And today... <laughs> That's not a big deal. Those those are similar things that you would find in other communities. But I think that the, the, that foundation is really important and it has a lot to do with how we have been. I think the Reconstructionist movement, even though it's really small, has had a huge impact on the larger Jewish world. Do you think from like a political and social perspective as well or not as much? Definitely from a social perspective and maybe from a political religious perspective, like the politics within Judaism itself. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like the fact that all forms of Judaism now ordain gay people, all forms of Judaism are now egalitarian. Um, and I do believe that at some point, I shouldn't say all forms, all the streams except for orthodoxy, but even orthodoxy has female rabbis. And But I'm not getting into that because some people want to argue with me, but they do. <laughs> but the fact that the, that the reform movement, the conservative movement and reconstruction movement, all of the, all of they have female rabbis, have gay rabbis. And I do believe that the conservative movement will at some point recognize patrilineal descent because that's what's happening. Like that is, the conservative movement has already lost a ton of members because of it's slow to adopt to, to um, 
recognizing LGBTQIA people. And I think at some point, they'll also have to look at patrilineal descent. And it's an easy halakhic argument. It's not hard. Um, and so, and the reason I say that is because way back in the day, Judaism was based off of patrilineal descent. It wasn't based off of matrilineal descent. And rabbis know that. It's just that somebody made a ruling and then they have to change the ruling. How long ago would you guess, or if you know, then great, were female rabbis allowed to start practicing and going to rabbinical school or how, or if you have any idea? Yeah, so uh, no, I don't, I don't know the date, but like, I think Sally Priestland was the first rabbi to be ordained. I don't, I think. What a fitting last name. (laughs) Yeah, I'm pretty sure she was a reform rabbi. And then uh, shortly and around that same time, all the other streams had uh, female rabbis. The conservative movement was the last well, the Orthodox movement is the last, but of the of the progressive communities. And when I say progressive, I mean non-Orthodox. Um, and there is, if you go to like the Jewish Women's Archive website, there's a, a chart that charts women's history. And on that chart is like, you know, first, first female rabbis, first gay rabbis. I feel like I can remember the time when we added the matriarchy yes. to mm-hmm. the Jewish songs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember which blessing or which song it is, but you know, mm-hmm. it's like, Elohe, Rachel, Elohe, mm-hmm. Leia. Like, I feel yes, like I was I mean, in like, yeah. yeah, I was in like second grade when we added the women. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking it was insane that the women were not in there before. Right. I thought that they were always there. I must have been checked out or just hearing what I wanted to hear. Or, maybe <laughs> or it, depends on, it depends on the community you were brought up in. And right. so yeah. for many communities, it was hard. Like, so like, I know that like, some conservative movements or synagogues, you know, were even though they could use the the the, the women in the in the in the in the prayer, weren't so quick to adapt adopt it. And then some pseudoreams, some prayer books gave you the option. So they had two versions. As communities start to started to adapt, and now today, you you I think the only version in the Reform Prayer Book is the one that includes the matriarchs and the patriarchs and the Re- reconstructors prayer book only has the has the same has the matriarchs and patriarchs um, and i would also assume that the, con- the new conservative prayer book um has both but i could I, i'm not sure because i haven't i have the conservative prayer book but i haven't looked at the amidah something i was wondering is if your father is not jewish that means the child is not jewish but if mm-hmm. the mother is jewish that means the child is Jewish. Obviously, like, I don't necessarily believe that, but that's kind of been the common thought. If you decide you have a Jewish parent and a parent who's not Jewish, do you have to go through a conversion in order to become Jewish if your mother isn't? Not in the Reconstructionist movement, the Reform movement. And also, I'm going to add another stream here, the Renewal movement. I'm not sure, but the Renewal movement was, that's another branch um, newer, um, started by uh, Rav Zalman, who I believe was a like Hasidic Jew, but mm-hmm. wanted to bring that more pluralistic communities. But in the conservative movement and the Orthodox movement, if if your if your father's Jewish and your mother's not, that you're not Jewish. So in that in those worlds, you have to have a conversion. That seems crazy. crazy to me. I feel like you should. <laughs> I hate use using the word crazy. Decide. I apologize. Like, I'm Jewish. <laughs> you know, I, it's all about, you know, yeah. it's yeah. just about, you know, there's two things. There's Jewish identity and Jewish status. And so Jewish identity is like, I'm Jewish. And, and, and I mean, I have a parent, but I want to, I want to adapt 
I mean, I have a Jewish parent, but I, I may not have had a conversion, but I consider myself Jewish. So therefore, I believe I have Jewish identity. Jewish status is that you have subscribed to the rules uh, or whatever of what the Jewish society has said makes you Jewish. So therefore, in, um, in order to have Jewish status in the reform movement and the reconstructionist movement, you need to have a Jewish parent. In order to have status in the conservative movement and orthodox spaces, you need to have a Jewish mother. And to add to that, if you don't have a Jewish mother, then you need to convert in all streams. But sadly, many in the Orthodox world do not recognize conversions that happen outside of the Orthodox world. Right. Mm. And so that makes many in the Jewish community feel less authentic, which I think is ridiculous because the Orthodox world is much smaller than the rest of the Jewish world. And so when people say things, well, you don't, you don't have, you don't have an Orthodox uh, conversion, therefore you're not Jewish. I'm like, says who? Like, <laughs> that's ridiculous. Like, yeah. I feel like, you know, personally, and this could be a controversial statement or this could be completely correct, but a lot of Orthodox individuals might not even look at reform Jews or essentially non-practicing Jews as Jews. Because I, I mean, really quickly, I worked at a shoe store like mm -hmm. a long time ago in Manhattan and I was wearing a Hamsa necklace and a Hasidic woman walked in and she was like, you're not Jewish. Like, why are you wearing that? And I had never been so taken aback in my life. I just did not even mm -hmm. know how to react. I was like, oh yeah, I am. My mom's Jewish. I got this in Israel. I went to Israel and she was, she <laughs> wouldn't have it. And I just, I did never understood that. There are many in the Orthodox world who only live in their shuttles, only interact in their communities. And therefore, if you don't look like this, so if you, if, for example, if you've been, in, been to Jerusalem, women look a particular, women, there's a binary gender thing happening in Jerusalem. Like, totally. you know, like women look a certain way, men look a certain way. People like me don't fit in. So therefore I'm not seen as Jewish, not just because I'm a black person that also adds to that as well. But if I dressed more like the Orthodox women in Jerusalem, then I would be seen as Jewish. And 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 so many, many and and many, even our students, many of our students at Elon have only had one ex type of Jewish experience. So anything outside of that is not Jewish to them. What I feel, I feel like one of the things I want to help our students understand is that Judaism is traditions. It's not just like right. one. And so, but yeah, that that in that and that woman's perspective, you're not Jewish. But any learned Jewish person would not say that to you. They may think that you're not Orthodox. Which is and, true. And right. Right. <laughs> valid. JC, I think you're Jewish. Thank you. <laughs> I am feeling better. You, correct me if I'm wrong, have some Ethiopian Jewish heritage. Is that right? I don't, I don't know. I don't think so, but I don't I don't okay. know. So I have a, a, a family um, story that has been passed down. I don't know if it's true. Like most I, family stories. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, not that I think people make it up, but I think that, you know, to understand Black history, there was a period of time where any disconnection from slavery was something to be proud of. So like, if you were seen as descended from slaves, you were somehow less than somebody who was not descended from slaves. And that's totally ridiculous. And so I know many of my, like my mother's generation were looking for more pro-Blackness that was not about enslaved people. And, but when I 
did go to Israel, I could, I did sense that I might look like them. And I've had, I've had people mistake me for American Jews who have had experience with Ethiopian Jews think that I'm black. I think that I'm an Ethiopian, but I think that just because they think that that's the only black Jews out there. But Probably. even though I have, when I interacted with Ethiopians in, in Israel, which was on a lot, I did feel like, like they look like my mother or they look like someone, but I didn't, dress like them, act like them. So they were like, <laughs> who are you? So, and I was, I was so focused on educating. Like I was there for school to, to, to um, you know, to, as part of my degree program and didn't have a lot of time to do other things. And I kind of regret that. So hope to go back one day to do more exploring. Like it took me almost until I left to go to find a gay club and went, went to the gay club, which was like the best. <laughs> there's a pictures of me on there's pictures of me on someone's Facebook page going, Hey Was that in Tel Aviv or somewhere else in Israel? It was in Jerusalem. Oh in, um, in Jerusalem. I there, oh that's amazing. Yeah. So it was so one of my instructors at the Conservative Yeshiva is and I'm blanking on her name and I can't believe it, but an amazing trans educator, trans woman, uh and the best class that I had that I almost didn't take. She um needed another she needed a minion, I think, for her class. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I looked at the description. I was like, I don't know what this is going to But I was like, okay, I'll go. Because she just grabbed me. And I love the class. And uh, and then she, so she was doing this lecture or doing something at this club. And so I went to it. And she used to be a Hasidic person. Maybe she still is. I don't know. But, you know, you know is now a, a woman um, and just amazing, amazing person. That's, so that's how I wound up at the club. That's incredible. How long were you actually in Israel for? And how long... How long does it take to become a rabbi? How long were your studies? I have no idea. I was in some, I was I was in Israel for a semester. I was supposed to be I was supposed to be there for a year, um, but my school took pity on me because my wife couldn't come, mm. and, uh, and so they said, "Okay, you can go for a semester." So I went for a semester. I went there the fall of 2015. And um, how long does it take? It, it, so depending, so all schools, it's five to six years. The extra year is about language acquisition. So if your Hebrew is not that great, you spend a year basically just studying Hebrew. If it's pretty good, then you spend five years. If you come in with like a PhD in Talmud, you know, or Jewish history, then you'll probably spend three years and three to four years in rabbinical school. But the average time is about five or six. Are you pretty fluent in Hebrew now? I'm fluent in text. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Like I, you know, it's learning Hebrew as an adult when you don't hear it. Like if I lived in Israel, um, uh, it'd be easier. Like my Hebrew was so much better when I came back from um, Jerusalem than it was when I left. Now, you know, not so much. You know, I just think you need to hear language mm-hmm. to be fluent in it. But I can, you know, what I'm not, my job doesn't require me to have conversations with Israelis. My converse, my my job is to help transmit text and, and history that is not written in English. And so that's, I'm good at that. <laughs> um, you had mentioned towards the beginning of our chat that the songs that either you sing at the synagogue at school at Elon, or maybe it was your pre, uh, previous synagogue are different from classic mm-hmm. Jewish songs that like we would know how so? And are they in Hebrew? Do you mainly uh, sing in English? What's what's up with that? So my, so my synagogue in Atlanta has had an evolution of music. So when I joined the synagogue, there was a group of people there who liked to sing. 
But I later found out the two of them were former opera singers. There you go, right there. But they wanted, wanted to, to create a choir. And the first time I'd heard the choir, truth be told, my perspective, they sound like a bunch of white people singing Kumbaya. But they worked on it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they, they worked on it. and with the offbeat, they couldn't like sway the right way. Oh, no. Um, but they but but over time, they have evolved that choir into something amazing. So I, I would encourage you to go to Spotify or their website um, and just listen to its congregation Beit Havarim. And there's like most of their music is under congregation Beit Havarim. And then they have one CD that's actually like the chorus of congregation Beit Havarim. But, you know, I'd been in that synagogue for so long, like whenever they'd sing, you know, it's like every member of the choir was talented, but they're all members of the synagogue. Like there's no ringers brought in there. I I didn't even know that was a thing until later on. Like every person in that synagogue, every person in that choir is an active member of the synagogue. And the, the, to get in the choir, you have to be able to sing on pitch, like not like, you don't need to be like, I don't even know if that's the right word, but you need to be able to sing. Oh, just like keep a tune. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So not on pitch. On pitch is right, Yeah, see, I'm not okay. even sure. I, I was I, like, that's... No, you have to be able, I don't know, but you have to be able to like hear, you know, and not, you can't be so off. Because of the diversity of the synagogue, uh, gay people, brown people, straight people, they often would bring in a variety of Jewish music from Ladino to Eastern Europe to American styles. My DNA is not about Eastern European music. I don't understand it. I don't get it. I can, you know, learn some of it, but it's just never going to be like really in me. But my DNA is about, is like, you know, Americana music. And, um, and that's, that's, that's how Jewish music in the United States is evolving. It's becoming American music and not something that was brought over. American influence, Mm -hmm. influenced by the, the, Melodies that you heard and you know, the musicians heard in their synagogues, but also influenced by the music that they're hearing on the radio or Spotify or whatever people listen to. Yeah. <laughs> that just made me think of like that experience that you have when you go to a different congregation or like someone else's house for a holiday and they sing like a remix or a different version of a prayer song. Like, it's kind of fun, but it is awkward when you're trying to sing along and you're like, oh, wait. I, I was not expecting it to go yeah. there. <laughs> and you like mess up and everyone can hear you speaking from experience. But it is cool how there's like a lot of variety. And also like, I think this, the music that is being sung, sung at camps right now, like Dan Nichols mm-hmm. and Nefesh Mountain. And, and I don't know if Joe Buchanan's singing at a camp these days, but that's what my students want to hear. The music that I, that I used to think was cool. They, I sing and they're like, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> by some weird chance, I'll know a song that they know. And they're like, oh my God, sing that again. Sing more of that. I'm like, okay, I don't really know. Why is this song? So now like I'm trying to figure out what it is that, what what is the camp music that they want to hear? Um, so we'll see if I figure it out. That's so interesting. I feel like for me, I mean, music can really make or break a service. Um, oh, yeah, especially totally. as mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. growing up, going to synagogue pretty much mm-hmm. only on the high holidays mm-hmm. and then moving out here and doing the same thing mm-hmm. i now go to a synagogue that has like insanely good music with like mm-hmm. every instrument you could imagine like they Icar? jam out oh, sorry what what synagogue Icar, or? it's called no it's called b'nai harin oh it's, okay. it's not as means children of freedom apparently mm-hmm. um I feel like it's more of a community and less of a synagogue they practice at the american jewish university cool. but they bring in like full I don't know, like 
bands. It's awesome. And it makes the whole experience like a lot more engaging. Is there a rabbi? There is a rabbi, yes. And a and a cantor. What do you, what's his, her, is it her name? Honestly, I, this is so horrible. Okay. I don't remember. Um, I'm, I'm just wondering because like I, a lot of the rabbis... They're I, much older. Um, like it's my, I have cousins who live out here and it's mm-hmm. really their community. I just okay. join when I <laughs> feel like it. But um, but it's really cool. It's uh, nothing like what I grew up in my like reform community with like just a guitar, you know? Um, the reason I'm asking is that like the... There are a lot of rabbis who think outside the box. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I consider myself to be one of them. And there are a lot of rabbis that don't. They don't know how. And right. so I'm always fascinated when I learn about um, communities that are, that are thinking beyond, you know, whatever they think people want to hear and are willing to grow and expand into something better. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Speaking of thinking outside the box, you have a huge following on Snapchat and TikTok. How did that start? Well, I'm actually not on Snapchat that much anymore. I mean, I have still have an account there, so I don't know who's following me there. Occasionally, I'll get a message, but these days I pay more attention to Instagram, TikTok, or Twitter and Facebook. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, TikTok is fun if it sticks around. <laughs> I'm here for it. I love oh it. Oh my god, um, I and, love it. Yeah. Save TikTok. Yeah. You know, it's just another, it's another way to connect with Jews outside of the walls of a synagogue. And so, you know, I started paying more attention to TikTok. We we were all shut down and the number of young Jews who, you know, couldn't go to camp or can't go to synagogue were looking for Jewish content online. So I've been telling my colleagues, if you don't think that you're not cool, don't think that Young people don't want to hear you. There's a whole bunch of people on Twitter that are like asking me for blessings or want to see more Jewish content. And so um, we need to be able to connect with them if that means going on a platform like TikTok or Instagram. I think it's um, so interesting to look at uh, the amount of Jews who probably didn't realize they were connected to Judaism until they Mm -hmm. either like A, leave the home, B, can't go to camp or, you know, something changes in their life that makes Mm -hmm. them realize how connected they are even if you like meet a, a jew you instantly like turn on your <laughs> i don't know what i'm trying to say I, I don't even remember how this connected to what you were saying but there was a point somewhere yeah especially if you i think one thing that's come, that i'm thinking about is like you know if you grew up in an, in an area where there were most of you hung out with are jews and now you're on a college campus where most people are not jews you're looking for connection or the opposite, could you you were the only um, Jewish kid in your neighborhood. Now yourself, you find yourself with a bunch of Jews. So like you want to, you want to. So there's like opportunities for connection. People want to connect. Connect. We are human beings. We are designed to connect with people. Um, and Judaism is all about connection because you need a minion to pray. You need ten, ten Jews to pray. I love that TikTok has become this way for people to connect and learn. Mm-hmm. It's not just like Gen Z kids like doing mm-hmm. dances. Yes, there's a lot of that, but it's also like so educational. Like I mm-hmm. am, I don't have a TikTok, but a lot of like my friends send me TikToks or <laughs> a lot of um, that content ends up on Instagram where I do spend a lot of time. And for example, I'm like really into like skincare and beauty. Mm-hmm. And it's so, I'm learning so much about how to like take care of your face uh-huh, from uh-huh. TikTok. <laughs> and it's such a cool way to learn about stuff. Yeah, and you can yeah, apply that yeah. to Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, mm-hmm. whatever. You name it. I really, I hope that it it stays, sticks around. Yeah. 
And, you know, the, the Instagram is trying to do its part to, to be similar, I guess. Um, yeah. <laughs> happens. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for like yeah. educating us and having this chat with us. This has been super mind opening. Yeah. We had another rabbi on last season, Rabbi Alex Kress. Shout out to him. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. You know, okay. Yeah. So we oh, love cool. him so much. Um, but he taught us so much. You have taught us. I mean, maybe even more. I think every time we speak to a rabbi, my mind is like absolutely blown. Um, This has been incredible. Thank you again. Thank you so much for joining us, Rabbi Sandra. You can find her on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Rabbi Sandra. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or listen for free on Spotify. And don't forget to rate and review us. Follow us on Instagram, please. Follow us, follow us at Pray For Us Pod. And if you feel like it, you can send us a note at prayforuspod at gmail.com. Love ya! This podcast has been mastered and mixed by the one and only Josh Fisher. Yay, Josh! We love you, Josh! <laughs>